can we all do our own work to become safe enough people and safe enough parents for our children to feel safe enough to ask us questions without feeling shamed? If a child does not feel safe enough to talk about what's on their hearts, on their minds, then they are not in emotional intimate, intimate space. Abandonment can be a thousand little moments of somebody you needed not be. It seems pretty obvious that if you don't give people room for their experience, you're going to create some additional difficulty for them. I promise you that you are not the only person struggling, and if you're struggling with feelings of unworthiness and feeling like nobody else is, that is an illusion. We are all human. We all have struggles. We all have moments of, of feeling unworthy. It's part of the human experience. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Gara. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. Thank you so much, Ellie. I'm so honored to be here. I'm sitting here with Gara Steinfeld, a therapist in Delray Beach, who um, we were introduced by Shana, mm-hmm. introduced me to Faith, introduced me to others. So it's wonderful. Maybe Shana one day will uh, grace us with her presence on this couch. <laughs> in the meantime, her. Uh, in the meantime, we'll take her recommendations. So you work in Delray Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been um, uniquely designated to work with a heavily Jewish population, mm-hmm. Orthodox by yes. background, even though that's not your background. Not my background. Very spontaneous. I feel very blessed. I feel like there's forces here that are beyond me that really placed me here, and I and I couldn't feel more blessed. It's it's a unique vantage point which I'd love to kind of explore with you because. Seeing it so intimately, but not mm-hmm. being a part of it, mm-hmm. kind of get the, um, what is it called? Like on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. but really looking in. Oh, yes. Really <laughs> looking in. Yes. <laughs> so, Which is such a beautiful, different perspective to see. And uh, I can't wait to hear, uh, <laughs> hear what we learn. What sort of, um, I guess, symptoms do people come to you for? What's going on in their life? Very good question. This is something that when I describe, like, these are some therapeutic terms, like, what's your ideal client? I always uh, struggle to describe the symptoms because on one hand, I specialize in trauma, addiction, and intimacy issues. But the symptoms that people come to me with, they are struggling oftentimes with depression, with anxiety, Oftentimes people are struggling with relationships. They struggle with shame. And if I'm struggling with shame, odds are, and I don't have healthy, effective, loving ways to cope with that shame, odds are I'm probably going to also struggle in relationships, right? Because how Mm -hmm. am I supposed to let somebody close to me? How am I supposed to let somebody see me if if there's a part of me that feels like I'm bad or I'm unlovable or I'm unworthy? So relationship issues, uh, depression, anxiety. Those I think are really like the key symptoms. Also people come to me struggling with compulsive sexual behaviors. I also get clients who struggle with 
some eating disorder issues, unhealthy relationships with food. Male, female clients, both more of one. Most of um, I work, actually I work with a mix right now. At one point it was like mostly men, then it got to mostly women. Uh, right now it's a good mix. Um, and another piece that I work with is people who come to me almost with, see, this is like the therapist part of me is like love addiction, right? But what does that look like? So many people struggle with love addiction and they have no idea. So um, just this, you know, obsessive nature about a relationship, just like a, a yearning to be loved, almost like not feeling safe without that type of love, um, violating one's own boundaries for the sake of the relationship. So is love addiction very different than codependency? It is different and there are similarities. I love the work of this woman named Pia Melody. Mm -hmm. I think any client that's ever worked with me has had to hear me say the words Pia Melody like 15 times, at least. Pia Melody says that all people who struggle with love addiction struggle with codependency. But not all people who struggle with codependency struggle with love addiction. Codependency is, so there are differences and there are similarities. I'm totally happy to elaborate because mm. put me in front of a mic or put anybody in front of me and I will talk about codependency, love addiction, attachment styles for like seven hours. Right. What I'm interested in is you said that a lot of people who struggle with love addiction don't know if they're struggling with love addiction. Mm-hmm. So can we define it for, for that person? If someone is struggling with it, but they don't know, but they would know after a conversation with you. So can you have a conversation with me that will clarify yes. that for them? Yeah. Yes. So an important piece that a lot of people don't know about love addiction is you can be in a love addicted relationship with your child. You can be in a love addicted relationship with somebody that you work with, with a therapist, right? It is not only romantic relationships where love addiction can live. There's often a cycle of love addiction, just like there's a cycle to every other type of addiction. Symptoms that somebody would experience in a love addicted relationship would be like obsessing about the person, wanting closeness, experiencing almost like obsessive thoughts, obsessive like ruminating about how can I experience closeness with this person um, and kind of like chases that ex experience of feeling close. A, a key component here is that we often find ourselves in a love addicted relationship with somebody who struggles with avoidant tendencies. So it's chasing something while the other one is running away. Essentially, yes. I mean, not always, but when I'm if I'm in a love addicted relationship, I am upset. I have a deep need for closeness with this person. I don't feel okay if I don't have this this sense of closeness with this person. And if this person moves away, I'm probably going to be in denial of this person's walls or unavailability. And instead I'm going to try to find a way like how can I get what I need, right? How can I experience this sense of closeness? How can I maintain this relationship and that's where there's kind of like that chase instead of somebody who doesn't struggle with love addiction might say to themselves hey like i keep reaching for this person to experience a sense of closeness and i really don't feel like i'm being met here 
I might say something. I might, you know, explore like, is this person available for this type of relationship with me? And after I try maybe two or three times and I don't get that and I have a conversation, I can be honest with myself about, I want some, I want a level of closeness with this person that this person can't give me. Okay. What kind of relationship can I have with this person? And okay, that's okay. Right. But if I'm struggling with love addiction, my need for the closeness with this person is so great that I may be unavailable to even notice that they're not available. I'm going to chase it. And what is that unavailability um, coming from? I guess that's the, is, that's, that, is that kind of like the denial in that aspect of the addiction? Like all addiction has an aspect of denial. Is that the denial there? <clears throat> is the denial that the other person isn't available? Part of the denial is accepting this person cannot be emotionally available for me in a way that I need. So it becomes this chase. And I think that's part of the high here, right? If somebody said to me, this, like if we pulled up a chart, for instance, of the cycle, and we, and we looked at that little space right there of that chase, right? Like noticing that there's like walls of unavailability and that the person was experiencing like cravings for more closeness. And, you know, in that piece right there, I might say like, where else in your life have you felt like you needed to chase or love? I'm not, excuse me, not love. Like where, where else have you felt like you needed to chase to feel loved? Like where else in your life have you felt that you needed to like continue to experience not getting your needs met. Does that make sense right mm -hmm. there? Like that's a familiar feeling for a lot of people, this chase. Like if I try harder if I, or if I'm better or if I make myself a little bit different, then I'll be loved. Because striving for the needs to be met and not an expectation of the needs being met. Yes, yes. I'm, I am worthy, right? Like there's this, I'm worthy and my needs matter. And nobody's going to meet all of my needs all of the time. But, you know, there's this familiarity to not getting one's needs met. If a love-addicted person got what they wanted, and instead of chasing the person mm -hmm. was available, how would they respond? That's such a good question, and I love that you asked that, right? So I feel like this is a little bit tied to what we call an anxious attachment style. So we all have something called the attachment system, which is this built-in system based on our relationship with our earliest primary caregivers and what relationships felt like to us growing up, right? So if somebody grows up with parents who were kind of inconsistent, like sometimes they met my needs, but sometimes they didn't. Sometimes mm -hmm. they were there for me when I needed them. Sometimes they weren't. I'm like a slot machine parent. Yes, exactly, right? Like, who knows? I got to keep, right? That, that exactly, that kind of embodies, like, let me keep chasing this until I get my needs met. Um, but that can create something called an anxious attachment or, you know, it's all in a spectrum. So we can mm -hmm. have tendencies, different relationships can provoke different attachment reactions. But what you're really touching on here is, People who struggle with love addiction may very well have their own fear of intimacy, right? I may subconsciously know that if I chase somebody who is emotionally unavailable, 
I am not going to have to be seen, right? I'm not going to actually have to be intimate myself. The cycle of love addiction is really based on intensity, not intimacy. And that intensity of that yearning and that, that deep longing to get my needs met is a familiar feeling from childhood. We recreate that. Is intensity in this context the same as drama? Oh, yeah. Drama, chaos, right? It's getting that hit. Right, yeah. so it's that kind of re replaying those early stages of the relationship over mm -hmm. and over and over again. Did he respond? Did Yes, yes. Are we going to go out? Are we? Not? And that can be played out, you're saying, throughout many years in a relationship. Can be, can be, right. yes. Um, you, you touched on something really interesting, though, like that, like what happens if the love, if somebody struggling with love addiction gets what they want? What does somebody with love addiction really want? I guess on some level of connection and intimacy, but you're saying that they want chaos and craziness and drama. I mean, I would ask the individual person and probably do some real work around that, right? But somebody who struggles with anxious attachment or anxious attachment traits, you know, or has a history of aban feeling abandoned, it's really hard for clients sometimes to label like, I was abandoned because even myself many years ago, I thought abandonment looked like being dropped at the step of a stranger's house. You know what I mean? Like in a blanket, mm. like, and my parents running away. And I realized, oh, abandonment can be a thousand little moments of somebody you needed not being there. Like that can be abandonment is, it can be a child crying without the presence of like a soothing caregiver repeatedly without repair. Like abandonment doesn't need to be this big, crazy mm. moment of being left. It's a lot of moments of, of feeling alone or, or feeling left. But so somebody who has like that history may have never actually experienced true intimacy. Right? So the moment that they're met with that, they can panic. Right? And create more of that drama and more of that intensity. And they can be the one pushing. Oh, for sure. If somebody's truly emotionally available to, with somebody who even is the chaser in a love-addicted relationship, that person can be like, I'm totally freaked out right now. And switch to her. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply towards a little bit more of like some avoidant tendencies. It's like two kids on a playground, one chasing the other. And then the one who's being yeah. chased, finally, you know what, I'm going to go get the guy back. And then it reverses. It totally can. He was yes. chasing him for a while, but as soon as the other one is running towards him, then the other one runs away. Yes. Kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Um, and when they, a love addict, when they find that, Someone who's who's available, it sounds like they may call that boring, right? Is that the type of person who would say this relationship is boring? Nailed it. I know someone like this. Oh, absolutely. It, it feels so boring because you're not experiencing this constant activation. For sure. And I read one time, and I think I've told all my clients this at least twice when it's relevant. Um, so I read somewhere it said, like, love is boring. And I, when I read it, I chuckled to myself because I just got that on such a deep level. It's not boring, right? But when there's that absence of that constant chase for validation and when you're not constantly chasing to get your needs met and you're not constantly chase it, chasing, it's calm. I can see how that... And is it more common in women than men? Because I know when I was in recovery meetings for um, sex addiction, and I knew there was there was another program for love addicts, and I just knew I didn't I didn't go, go to those meetings, but there was there was some overlap in the meetings, and like so oftentimes if someone was sharing a, a talk, so you know others from the love addiction meeting would come to this meeting, and I just I understood that there were mostly women there, but I wasn't sure if it was because mostly women have that problem or mostly women are comfortable having that problem? Very good point. I do not think that this is solely a women issue. This is something I work with men on. This is something I see in both men and women. And something else, you know, I, when I work with women, I've worked with women who, you know, I have seen traits of sex addiction. And for s some reason at least the women that I've worked with. So, you know, forgive me if there's some blanket statements. There are no such things in reality. Mm. But um, I know that some women react differently to love addiction, you know, and labeling themselves as somebody who struggles with love addiction than they would saying, I'm somebody who struggles with sex addiction. Right. right? Like I noticed some women have much more of like a, oh my gosh, shameful response to the idea that they could have some sex addiction traits. Of course, you know, there's a, there's a stigma, but there's, so there, I've noticed more of like a shameful, uh, dislike to identifying with sex addiction traits in the women that I work with. Right. But not that they're, that's what I wondered because the meetings that had a, a the sex word in it had a much heavier male to female ratio and the meetings that had the, a love term in there. 
know, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, for example, or Love Addiction, they would heavily skew female. Mm-hmm. It, I wasn't sure, but it felt to me like it was more of a, a comfort than a actual problem. Mm. I see both men and women. With both. With both. Right. I, I would imagine men would feel much more comfortable describing themselves as a sex addict than a love addict. I'm going to take your word for it because I don't know what it feels like to be a man. But, right. I mean, very similar to, to what I've noticed. Yeah, I think that man may feel like it sounds too soft. It's possible. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, connecting to where we started this conversation, that you work with a lot of... Um, Many people from the Orthodox community, have you seen certain themes as it relates to sex and love addiction that are strongly connected to the way um, Orthodox families are are raised? Oh, yes. Yes. I have. Say more. So... I see, so in my opinion, sex addiction, love addiction, alcoholism, these are all ways that we've learned how to fulfill our attachment needs when there wasn't somebody there to make us, when our attachment needs weren't met, right? These are ways to make ourselves feel better, to feel soothed, to, or to make ourselves feel a certain type of way. I see a lot of similarities in the core woundings and Something that I notice in the people that I work with is there's a huge lack of age-appropriate sex education. And that does what? Increases shame around it? What, What happens as a result of that? So let me ask you this. If I may, and you're welcome to answer or not, um, don't worry, we control the um Okay, cool. So can I what ask what goes out? You can okay. ask anything. So can I ask you about like what were you taught about sex growing up? Or what were you not taught? Pretty much nothing. Um, from a parental figure or an authority figure until I was maybe seventeen or eighteen was the first time I heard a teacher speak about masturbation like that that's it meaning kind of just diving right into the deep end what i did learn the first time i remember being introduced to the concept of sex was by a family friend who was maybe a year or two older than i was and inside an encyclopedia and i don't remember if it was in his home or my home um you know he opened up to the letter s and sex and there was a picture of um a male and a female together um i don't remember it to be pornographic or anything like that but just something that was clear that it was sexual and you know we read it and he it was the it was what was more memorable was not what he was sharing with me but the way he was sharing with me that it was some secret that no one could know and we mm-hmm. had to make sure no one was looking while he showed me this page of the book wow so notice that right there's that secrecy there's this like and, and what does it feel like when we have secrets? 
what is the the underlying message there? Mm-hmm. That there's some, something wrong with it. There's something, certainly shame gets attached very quickly to a secret, yeah. And what did you make of that silence, you know, from parental figures, et cetera, around sex? I didn't know, I don't know that I made anything of it. Um, well, clearly, as I got older, mm-hmm. right, clearly, as I got older, it was clear that um, the silence was forced, meaning I had known something and it was clear not to talk about it with anyone. If something was mentioned, there would be a snickering of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess more of the same, more mm-hmm. shame, secrets, et cetera. Exactly, right? There creates this energy, like, and, you know, children are smarter than we like to give them credit for. Um, sometimes I joke and say they know more than I do, right? Mm. They're 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 paying attention more than we th- we think they are, and they're constantly making meaning of the world. They're constantly making sense of the world, and when there's this you know purposeful silence, oftentimes a child can make a message about this is bad, this is wrong. We're not. This is why we don't talk about this. Right, so there, there's already that sense of, like, shame that can be attached to it. That makes sense. Uh, you can have a family that has a very age-appropriate, loving, healthy conversation around sex, and then you can have another family in the secular world that also doesn't talk about it. Right, so I don't think that that's unique to the Orthodox community as a whole. I think I think that can happen anywhere. Right. But so what is it that's it's not only unique, but it certainly is happening in the Orthodox Orthodox community. So you feel like because you started saying something about intimacy and there not being closeness and then you went to the shame around um sexuality specifically. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of they're 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 two different things. So in terms of the secrecy, your recommendation to a family. So for example, I mean, I don't raise my kids Orthodox, but um, the other day my son asked how, how babies come out of the stomach. And my wife just answered it like point blank, comes out through the vagina. And that was that. What is that age appropriate? Is that not? What is this term age appropriate that you... That is so cute. I'm sorry. Just hearing <laughs> that about your son asked that question, my heart just so wells. Um, so age appropriate. My it, son is 21. No, I'm kidding. Oh, no, there you go. Age, age appropriate. <laughs> I'm like, okay, my we could have started is... <laughs> this conversation a lot earlier with him uh, then. I'm joking. My son is five. I'm just kidding. I mean, so age appropriate, it, it means... There's a lot of research, and this is not my area of expertise, like, you know, educating children. I get them a lot later when they're Mm -hmm. adults, and and we're kind of backtracking. Uh, So I'm not an expert in this. This is not my area of expertise. Um, I would speak more to, like, a child therapist um, for this type Mm -hmm. of information, like, based on the research. There's actual, like, research that shows you what appropriate conversations look like for your kid, but, I mean... So an age-appropriate conversation would include, you know, I would go off of the research that they have. I would not go off of 
what I know because that's not my area of expertise. Hmm. I'm not researching this on a regular basis. I work with adults. But using appropriate language with your children to be able to label their bodies at a, at a young age, right? Teaching them like healthy boundaries, knowing like people are not allowed to touch you, right? So starting to have that kind of a conversation with your child early on is appropriate. I think people never, so many people, I don't want to have a blanket statement, never had that from their parents, probably never had that from their parents and have their own, it's possible that they have their own discomfort around that. So they, they don't have that kind of conversation with their child. Right. I'm trying to figure out what the big secret is. Like why, which age is it appropriate? I understand. I don't have to sit there and describe to a child all the emotions and feelings and positions and everything else. But um, just this idea that a couple has sex and then a child is born. I mean, we would describe that about an, an animal. I don't know. The chicken, mm -hmm. the male chicken sits on the egg or doesn't, whatever. The male chicken does something to the female chicken. Mm -hmm. Eventually the egg comes out, the chicken comes, hatches, right? There's like, at which age is it not appropriate? You're saying it's age-appropriate language, not age-appropriate ideas. I'm yes, trying to figure it, out where this idea even came from for there to be a secret around this. Like, why do we have to introduce it to children ever as this thing? Children are going to hear and they're going to learn. And if we don't sit with them and create safe enough people for them to feel like they can ask questions without being shamed, they're going to be learning from pornography. Pornography or older people who probably also learned from right. pornography, right? I think at the core here and at the heart of it is like, can we all do our own work to become safe enough people and safe enough parents for our children to feel safe enough to ask us questions without feeling shamed? Okay, so that's the central theme yes. that you kind of see in your work is that around these subjects, in general, there's a lot of shame, but around these subjects, there's an added level of shame. Yes. And then later on, developing these kind of... Um, these kind of problems like sex addiction or love addiction, right? Sex addiction, I'm very, I'm intimately familiar with. A love addiction, maybe less so. You said something which is really interesting that keeps coming up in my mind. You said, we were talking about emotional intimacy. And now we're talking about like shame and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And those are different topics. But to me, if I really take a step back, they're actually very connected. As it, as it relates to this topic, because our first experience of relationships is often in like our family of origin, right? It's mm -hmm. in our home. And I think a home that I would like to think and I would like to see that a home where there is emotional intimacy amongst children and parents could possibly be a safer home for a child to be able to ask those questions and be curious. Children are curious, right? Um, so kind of creating this like home where there is emotional intimacy. Do you see how that feels connected? I can see that, yeah. I can see that. That if a child does not feel safe enough to talk about what's on their hearts, on their minds, then... They are not an emotional intimate space. Yeah. Right. So it's actually 
very connected. It's very connected to some of the roots that get planted that can, you know, grow into sex addiction, right? That intimacy piece, that, that, you know, comfort around being seen and being known and being close to somebody in that way. Do you see, just to segue a little bit, but not too far off, do you see differences um, within different addictions? Meaning the, I think a term used earlier was a core wound, maybe the core, the core wound lying underneath sex addiction, love addiction, we mentioned, you know, the slot machine example, possibly gambling or eating disorders. Do you see a difference in the core wounds or there's kind of a, a uniformity of shame and from there problems emerge? such a broad question. I could speak for like 12 hours on it. Um, there are some differences. And I think that kind of, interestingly enough, like brings us back to the original question that you asked, like, are there certain, you know, themes that I see with mm -hmm. the people that I work with? One of the themes that I see, which is a huge major core wounding, is so many of the people that I work with come to me with this shame, this belief I'm not good enough and I have to be perfect, right? Which, you know, kind of exists on this like flip side of the same coin, right? Either I'm, either I'm perfect or I'm bad, mm -hmm. right? Um, rather than like I'm an imperfect person worthy of love and belonging just like you, right? So many of the clients that I work with were given this, I'm like, how do I say this without offending people? But so be it. Um, felt like they were given a box that they had to fit into. And because that of our own like imperfect nature, we don't ever fit perfectly into a box, right? And so the messages that a lot of the people that I work with have gotten is like, I can be my authentic self, but I have to hide it. Right? Like, I'm going to do some of this stuff in secret. I'm going to show you only the most perfect, mm -hmm. non-messy side of me. I have it all together. I'm, I'm perfect. Right? And those other parts of me, I'm going to kick them to the side. No one's going to get to see those. And honestly, I have to work with people for months for them to even be able to show those parts because literally they're... Show so, it to you. Yes, they're so disowned that it takes some time for them to even like learn how to be in their authenticity, even with me. And I'm like, there's anything they could tell me and I wouldn't bat an eye. And they feel that. And even feeling that, it takes them time to like sh be in their authenticity and kind of like figure out how to do that because it's something they haven't done for so many years. So this feeling of like, I have to be perfect, like, or I'm not going to be accepted. I have to be a certain way or I'm not going to be accepted. Or I have to be, you know, I have to fit into this and anything that doesn't, I have to disown or I have to hide it. Or if people knew I wouldn't be loved, I wouldn't be accepted, I wouldn't belong. So, you know, those are some of the struggles that my clients all seem to share. And I always make this joke. I'm like, if I could just, I'm just going to go to, I have a lot of clients that are in Lakewood. I'm mm -hmm. like, if I could just go to Lakewood for four days, give me two, mm -hmm. you know, give me five minutes with like, you know, these beautiful people that I am blessed to work with. I see them in such 
a beautiful light even though i know like their deepest darkest secrets and i still see them and they they shine to me like they radiate like they are so worthy of love you know but it doesn't matter if they make a billion dollars a year or if they're in debt they all seem to share this like i'm not good enough i need to be perfect i need to be better and they hide parts of themselves and then you know rarely have these deep relationships in their life where they can feel truly connected truly seen and you know start to like chip some of that shame away right i can see how a lot of the messages i got growing up could feed that perfectionism can you tell me more can i tell you more good therapist yeah i want to hear more about that yeah i'm i've spoken about some of these ideas on other uh discussions i've had but there was this inherent message that um, the people we're looking up to are not struggling. Mm-hmm. And certainly the ones at the top of the chain didn't struggle at all. Like the most righteous amongst us don't even have an evil inclination, let's say like that mm-hmm. idea, mm-hmm. which whatever that means, I don't know. But um, to suggest that there is no struggle is just, not a human experience but that message is communicated um over and over and it seemed that way it seems that way with more than just you know those at the top is i i couldn't imagine a teacher ever telling me that at some point they doubted whether god existed Mm mm-hmm kind of leaving room for that mm-hmm. space. Or maybe this morning they had major doubts mm-hmm. over it if they were being more honest about it. Or maybe in the very moment they're talking to us, they have that doubt. But there wasn't a lot of room for that. There was a suggestion of... Also the, the, the idea of punishment, that a sin would be met with punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, that... That idea, which I understand why they pushed it, is because they didn't want sins, at least not the outwardly sins that threaten the community. They don't want those sins to be um, to be publicized. The idea that doing something that would then get you immediately punished suggested that the people who you were seeing in front of you who weren't punished were not doing it. So for whatever reason, you may have been spirit if you dare try doing something. I think it, it, I've heard many people say that as, let's say, a teenager, they've flipped the light on on Shabbos and they were surprised that they didn't disintegrate. Find me a teenager who isn't curious about pushing the limits, not because they're bad, but because they're a human and because they're a teenager. And how did that make you feel about yourself when you were witnessing all of these people not struggle, not doubt? What did that feel like, assuming that they weren't struggling or doubting? Mm-hmm. Right, you feel very alone in your struggle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting, and that's why I'm like, I just need to have a little liquid intensive. Or maybe a really big one. So what would you do? I'm sure some people in Lakewood uh, watch this podcast if you were, boom, right at the camera. And you were delivering. (laughs) 
if you were saying 30, 60 seconds, you know, maybe two minutes, take as long as you need. Take as long as you need to prepare and take as long as you need to deliver the message. But what is that message that you deliver? Well, I, like I guarantee you at least one person in the Lakewood community will see it. I promise you that you are not the only person struggling. And if you're struggling with feelings of unworthiness and feeling like nobody else is, that is an illusion. We are all human. We all have struggles. We all have moments of, of feeling unworthy. It's part of the human experience. And if you have somebody in your life that feels like a safe enough person who is non-judgmental, who you feel could hold some space for you, see what it might feel like to stick your toe in the water and to let a little bit of that imperfectness be seen. I mean, that's a cultural, that's a shift. That is a shift. And what would you say to maybe the parents? And by parents, I mean the, like the authority figures in that, that context, right? Because that message felt very driven to um, someone who felt like the student or the child in that. Maybe they're an adult child today, but not that they're an authority figure in in that that setting right so the people who are setting the tone quote unquote for what's going on in the community what's your message to them for the people who are like leaders in the community mm -hmm. hold space for the human experience hold space for that struggle find beauty find lessons find wisdom in that and i hope that you know you can find it in your yourself to hold space for you know, any darkness, right? So I think sometimes people feel a little bit safer, even rabbis, like any person, you know, you can feel a little bit more comfortable holding space for the light, right? It's, it's, we can really only hold space for somebody else's darkness that we can hold for our own, mm -hmm. right? So I think it, it starts with you. It starts with, you know, making a little bit of room for your own darkness and, you know, in turn, you're going to make room for other people's darkness. Like, learn how to befriend your own fears. Learn how to befriend your own sadness and your own imperfections. And that, in turn, once you can feel safer holding that for yourself, you're going to feel safer holding that for somebody else without needing to fix or change them and just kind of be there and, and allow them to have that space. I think that's where it really starts. Yeah. So I, I have my own thoughts on um, where the opposite of what you're saying may originate from, may originate from. but I'm interested in yours as an outsider looking in. It seems pretty obvious that if you don't give people room for their experience, you're going to create some additional difficulty for them. Yes. Where, where, do, you, where do you think that comes from what could be the driving force no one's trying to hurt their children no one's trying to hurt their students where do you think that could be coming from as an outsider looking in i ask my i ask myself that question all the time there are people out there of every community who have healthy enough loving parents who also had healthy enough loving parents and that gets passed on. And in every community, there's, you know, people who have trauma that's unresolved and they have children and they 
can parent from that place of unresolved trauma, right? And we can't really give away something that we never got. I can't, unless I do work and learn how, I can't give that away unless I learn how probably to give that to myself first before I give that to somebody else. I don't have an answer to that question. Mm. I have some thoughts, but before I go to my thoughts, I actually want to pick up on a conversation you and I had offline about the 12 steps. So um, we were talking about the 12 steps and sharing both what I understood. So tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Sharing gratitude and appreciation for the gifts of the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. um, certainly for myself, it's personal, but also, you know, seeing in others how much um, people have benefited from it and not going years past. The other day I was on a call with someone and I was sharing with him that I thought the 12 steps could really, really help him. And leaning in and not just going to meetings, but diving into the, uh, the, the wisdom that the 12 steps themselves hold, I thought can help him a lot. And I have tremendous appreciation for that. And it sounded like you did as well. Gratitude, appreciation, respect. At the same time, there are certain ideas that we also seem to both agree on about ways that the 12 steps were maybe unhelpful to certain people or were used mm -hmm. in unhelpful ways, some of the, mm -hmm. the messages. Um, did I characterize your position accurately? You did. And it's so interesting to notice the sensations in my body as I hear you say that. Um, like, the 12 steps saved my life. Uh, and I'm just noticing, like, such an immense gratitude, exactly. And a little bit of fear, I'm going to do this anyways because uh, I can feel fear, notice that I'm safe and do it anyways. Um, I'm like I'm allowed to have my own opinions about this. I'm mm -hmm. allowed to feel a tremendous gratitude and also some qualms, if you will. So let's speak to the qualms. <laughs> we can speak to the qualms. The place that I get stuck with all of it is can we keep going? Right? Perhaps there are people out there who simply work the 12 steps and that's it. There are also many other people, like that's it and they are, feel really full, they have a strong sense of self, they've got healthy boundaries. I mean, they have a deeper relationship with self and that's beautiful. If, if the 12 steps is, if that is all you need, that's beautiful for you. Um, I find myself to be a little bit more multifaceted and complex. So I think maybe I needed a little bit more and I needed to keep going. Um, more, so is it more time you're referring to or more tools? More tools, more room, more space, more expansiveness, more, for instance, as we've shared offline, mm -hmm. um, I think I shared, I have this deep feeling. I don't have any statistics to prove this. 
nor do I feel like I need any, um, this is my opinion, is that I bet there are a tremendous amount of people struggling with sex and love addiction in the rooms of AA with multiple years of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Possibly even people growing in that, you know, with their behaviors with multiple years of sobriety. I heard Dr. Carol Clark, I think her name is, she's a therapist in Miami uh, who wrote a book, I think Addict America or Addicted America mm-hmm. or something like yeah, that. She did. She, um, she said, it was in a talk, so I feel comfortable quoting her, that she believes that more than 50% of people in AA and NA, she didn't qualify sober or not sober in that program, but mm-hmm. more than 50% uh, percent are quiet or closeted sex addicts. Yes. And I see this, and it hurts my heart because I just want to be like, there's more, keep going. So that's what I mean by there's more, keep going, don't stop here. Right. Alcoholics Anonymous is not going to address your trauma. It's also not going to address your intimacy issues. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is going to tell you, like, you're a selfish, self-seeking alcoholic, go pray and do something for somebody else. And listen, these tools have saved my life. There are times I needed to humble myself in that way time and time and time again and will also need to humble myself in that way. And I shared with you that there's the ACA book, the, the mm-hmm. you know book of adult child of alcoholics and dysfunctional families has a little bit different of a perspective. It says these behaviors, which you know Alcoholics Anonymous would call character defects, these behaviors, you know, were developed as a result of an environment that didn't feel safe, right? So it's, for instance, ACA is a little bit more compassionate in that way of you're not bad. You're not a POS. You're a person who's struggling with trauma. So at the, I have a little bit of a qualm with that language, like, you know, of being a selfish, self-seeking alcoholic. I'm so much more than that. That is not who I am at my core. Controversial? Perhaps. So I want to make sure I understood. There were two different points there. One was the label, identifying strongly with that label. I'm a selfish, self-seeking alcoholic. That sounds kind of harsh to call oneself. Yes, and I feel like a lot of people who struggle, struggle with alcoholism and trauma are already probably pretty harsh. Right, so needing more of that may be unhelpful. Okay, and the second thing was that someone can feel like they're 10 or 15 years sober in AA and everything is okay and they don't need to keep going because they are sober and they'll be celebrating their chips and recovery and sobriety year to year and everyone will be clapping. And at the same time, they're watching pornography four or five times a week. But because it's not alcohol, everyone's clapping and saying you're doing great. Yes, yes. And it gets weird because on one hand, you know, it says in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, our sobriety is based on our spirit. It's, you know, as a result of our, our spiritual growth. Like, you, you know, on one hand, it does say keep going spiritually. But what if we went beyond that now that i put down the drink i'm actually left with myself Mm -hmm. and that's the keep going 
but people just stay. I mean, good good for anybody who's who stays and who continues to nourish their program, but what if we kept going? And what would keep going look like? Because I know many people, I would say in the sexual recovery programs that I was a part of, about half of those people came in through another program where mm-hmm. they were talking to a sponsor and sharing some of what was going on in other areas of their life. And the sponsor said, okay, congratulations for mm-hmm. your many years of sobriety in this program, but you got another addiction. I love that. Is that what it's called? Like, no, through, through the back door. I think that's when you go to a, a meeting. Um, I should know this lingo. I've been in the rooms for quite some time. But it's been a while since I've heard this. Like when you come into the back door or the side door. I'm not sure. I think that's when you accompany somebody else to a program and then you listen and you're like, oh my gosh, uh, that's you. me. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. That was my, um, my sponsor would tell that story all the time that he came to help his partner um, mm-hmm. get into recovery and then only to find out and hearing some of the messages that, wow, <laughs> I yes. belong here too. Yes, that happens. Right. You know, one of the things that um, got me talking about a lot of these topics much more publicly was the story of a gentleman who I was in program with who was over 20 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he began coming to sex, sexual recovery programs but not in the same, you know, oftentimes uh, buildings or churches will have several meetings in the same space. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to come to the meeting in the same building as his home group mm. that he regularly visited because he didn't want his buddies from AA to see that he was going to a sexual recovery program. Mm. And it made me think of how sad and how ironic that the space you came to, which is made to be your safe place, has now become the place where you can't really talk about what's going on because your AA buddies want to prove. Yeah. My curiosity is, is it the AA buddies who aren't approving? Or is it his own feelings and shame? Over time, he came, He start, as he started going to more meetings, then he eventually came to you know, back to that other group. So on some level, it was him, right? He was able to resolve it without them, but they didn't make it that easy. Mm. That's a, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, very ironic. And that's, gosh, we're all imperfect people. We're all human beings. All human beings. Right. But I find with the, similar to what you're saying, it's essentially this subliminal message that, we have all the answers and everything you need can be found here. And yeah, AA is accepting if you need to go to a therapist, certain kinds, depends what it is, but okay, that's good. Don't share any of their books or any of the other ideas here, but we understand that some people may need to, to do that. But in general, everything you need is to be found here. And the amount there's a couple a couple of issues with that. Number one is, like you're saying, very often people are struggling, so they're not finding the answers there. 
But then many people, those are people who get sober. Another problem is that a lot of people just don't get sober through the program. Many, many yeah. people don't get sober. And that idea that we have the answer and this is the way. But so many people who walk in the door and give hours and hours and hours of the program do not get sober. They don't. Yeah, it's really sad. And there are people who are so rigid and so deeply believe that they have the answers. Even therapists. There are many therapists out there who will push Alcoholics Anonymous even though it's not working for somebody. It worked for me. Saved my life, gave me a life worth living, all of those. I am that living cliche. Right. Literally. And But if so, I don't care what somebody does to get sober. I don't care what pathway. As long as they find a pathway that works for them, but, you know, and hopefully their avenue is healthy. Right. Right. Um, but yes, and it can be a little bit shaming. Something I have personally experienced is, you know, a tool in the book is pray, pray, give this up, give this up mm -hmm. to God, give this character defect up to God. And there was a point in my own sobriety where, like I said, right, I, this actually wasn't even early on. This was, it wasn't early on. Like, you know, we're kind of like onions. The more time we have sober, we kind of peel back these layers if, mm -hmm. if we're willing and we're paying attention and we're doing some work, which is something that I highly value. <laughs> so I'm peeling these layers and, and you know, I touch, I touch some trauma, right, that I would have never been able to touch if I was drinking, so thank God I'm sober. But praying's not working, right? And I'm getting all of these messages that that's the answer, <coughs> but it's that's not working for me and there's a little bit of this shaming belief that you you're know, not doing it right. You're not doing it right. These are your character defects. And in reality, right, like for instance, when that trauma was touched, I wanted to, there was a lot of anxiety, so I wanted to, I wanted to be a little bit more controlling or a little bit more like um, control, like right, my, my desire, I can notice, oh, I really wanna control this. I, w I wanna have more control here because that's going to make me feel safer. And, and the things that I would normally do to connect spiritually were I was feeling so much anxiety and it was really hard for me to connect at that time, right? So I feel like there wasn't a lot of space being held for that. I didn't hear a single person ever through my sobriety ever share like, it's okay if this is hard for you. Like, it's okay if it's hard to connect right now or it's okay if you need something in addition to this. Okay. It's, we have all the answers. Yeah, that, so pray, that, just pray. Right. Or four, or four step it away. Or step it away, yeah. Yeah. Right. And not that those tools don't work, right? Same as you. Yeah. But, yeah, there's, it's, um, I did a podcast not long ago with um, Mayor Kay. We called it Abandoning God and Finding Religion. Abandoning Religion and Finding God. Well, slip. What does that mean? <laughs> Let's dissect it. Abandoning Religion and Finding God. And in it, he mentioned that the message when he didn't, like from, he grew up religious, Orthodox Chabad, the message that he got when um, he wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid, 
he wasn't buying all of it, mm-hmm. was that he's the one doing something wrong. Even though he was a, mm-hmm. a teenager, he's the one doing something wrong. And oftentimes it can feel the same way in the 12 steps is that here someone is going to meetings four or five times a week and it's not working and it's yes because you're doing something wrong. You're mm-hmm. somehow not doing the steps right. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, it's possible. And I have seen amazing results for people who've leaned into the program and they say say meeting makers make it and i I agree with that um usually provided that they actually lean into the 12 steps and not just use the meetings to uh you know many many people go to meetings without doing the steps yes or they try to do them independently based on the poster on the wall right it doesn't work that way yeah like to actually lean in with the sponsor go through it you know um someone told me that uh the analogy they had for that is it's like going to a business conference when you're not in the industry. Yes. You know? Yes. So like the meetings, the meetings are forms to work the steps. So we work the steps and then we have a space where people are trying to integrate it into their lives and we have an opportunity to interact with them and see how they're doing it. Um, but when that's not working, do we tell the person it's because you didn't do it right? Even though it does work. And sometimes that's the message that's given to people is. Sometimes it is. Sometimes that is the message. And it gets a little bit tricky because with my example of sober, haven't thought even about taking a drink. That's my experience. That might not be somebody else's. But but that's also not the end-all be-all, right? You didn't stop once you're no longer obsessing over alcohol. Oh, didn't stop going to the meeting? No, didn't stop thinking about working on yourself once yes. it's not the end-all be-all. Yes, definitely not the end all be all. Right. That would that's be nice, that's the but... problem. <laughs> that's that's what I think is a central issue is that Yes. But so another piece here is I have a deep relationship with myself. Sometimes it's deeper than others because I'm imperfect and we all life shows up, right? I know myself enough to be able to say what is it that I need to be able to they connected to this program, and what does that look like for me? Trusting myself enough. I haven't abandoned it. Part of it. Um, I don't go to a million meetings, but right. knowing what I need from, it's my relationship with myself that gives me the capacity to know what do I need and what does it look like for me to deeply take care of myself here. And I got to choose people to surround myself with who I don't know if it's rare give me a lot of grace let me have my own relationship let me have a very fluid relationship with spirituality have given me like all the what relationship fluid 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 like very like open to and has given me so much space to be really curious and really open without any shame and almost like it's the people who've doubt. It's like you want to find a true believer, like find someone who's doubted, right? Like mm. seeing that as a, as a source of strength and beauty and have never made me feel unloved or unwelcome or anything like that. And that's why I stayed. That is why I stayed. Right. I think that, you know, in my case, I was there for so many years, going to tons and tons and tons of meetings. I don't believe how many meetings. I mean, just... It was pretty much on my schedule every night. I didn't go every night, but it was pretty much on my schedule every night. And, you know, with that, four or five times a week and, it's, you know, several different sponsors and working through the steps multiple times and sponsees. 
And I wasn't always on time to meetings, right? I was by far from a model. Uh, I, I didn't do everything perfectly, but at the same point in time, after years and years and years and years and years, I still had so much freaking anxiety. And I'd gotten through all of it, and I, I'd gotten through a lot of it. I had much better tools, and I wasn't having panic attacks anymore. But I just knew this was not freaking normal to have this much anxiety. I did not want to live with that anymore. And that's when I started to explore other tools like psychedelics mm-hmm. um, and psychedelics, breath work, just, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> psychedelics and psychedelics. I started exploring <laughs> other tools, and through it I found healing, but I didn't feel like I can talk about that comfortably. Mm. You know, if I had said in a meeting, you know, last night I went to a strip club and had sex with a couple of the girls in the back, that would have been more accepted than if I said I did an ayahuasca journey last weekend and it changed my life. That is something, isn't it? Yeah. And at what point did you realize that? Oh, very quickly. It was very, very clear. Do not, do not talk about those things here. This is not, this is not the space. So interesting. I have a sponsor who I'm not going to give her business, but I will say this. Mm. She'd be okay with it. Um, it's so very loving. And I have been able, I have felt so safe. I can tell this woman anything. And she would love me. And I know that in my bones, like and in my body. And I also know she will call me out. She was actually, I think, the first relationship in my life where somebody loved me enough to tell me the truth. Somebody loved me enough to call me out like that. Like, mm-hmm. respectfully, but, you know, instead of co-signing or enabling, like, she tells me the truth. And I felt safe enough to tell her, I'm interested in this. It's been, a, it's been mm-hmm. years now. <laughs> and I haven't acted on it. I'm curious, and I would like to, but I've shared with her my desire to, you know, explore psychedelics. And she holds that space for me as an individual saying one-on-one she yes yeah. and in my sponsorship family she would she, right. no one would no and the truth is obviously it's very different um programs right a program that deals with um any sort of mind-altering substance is going to have a harder time with psychedelics and i get that i understand that but and i was not in a program like that it was sexual recovery program so there isn't necessarily a problem with but she would she was supportive she would she would let let me i'm an adult i can choose to make my own choices but she would be supportive of me and would talk with me to explore what my intentions were to to, yeah right one-on-one i found individually i found people supportive Mm -hmm. um curious etc as far as the program was concerned, oh, yeah. talking about that felt like this. Yeah. There's no room for this aspect within no. within the recovery. So to a degree, it felt like a contradiction. In some way, it felt like a secret I'd have to keep around certain people. And if I was too excited about it, then... Um, you know, they kind of make you feel like you're a drug dealer at a meeting or something, right? Like that was the, that was the, the, that was the feeling. It was just like not here, but where I was coming from was I just didn't want to live with this anxiety anymore. And 
from the program standpoint, it's like, Ellie, you're five years sober. Come on. Like, you're doing great. Okay, and yeah, I was, but I didn't want to live with this anxiety anymore. There were aspects of it that were so much better. I was no longer obsessing over sex. I was no longer watching pornography regularly. I was no longer hiring anyone for sex. There were things that were much better, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to live with this anxiety. And I, I had zero belief that the program had anything more to offer me in that regard. Just nothing. I had, I had completely squeezed that lemon dry for something like um, anxiety. And today I don't live with anxiety. And it's thanks to the work with Beautiful. a lot of these plants. And I, I can't imagine, you know, sometimes people say a psychedelic journey is like 10,000 hours of therapy. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because in 10,000 hours of therapy, I wouldn't have hit that. Like that, like it doesn't feel like that awareness could have come in 10 lifetimes of therapy. It just wasn't, it wasn't one of the available tools. It's, it wasn't going to happen. One's a laser, one's a hammer. They're just different things. And if you can swing a hammer 10,000 times and it won't do what a laser can do, it's just something different. So not to take away anything from the 12 steps. And I'm grateful for having that background as I went into the psychedelic exploration that I had the language and the tools and a framework for healing, all of those things. But there definitely felt to me like there was plenty of shame within different areas of the 12 steps, not obviously from the founders or mm-hmm. book itself because yeah. the founder itself of AA became a big fan of LSD and mm-hmm. AA was started after a Belladonna treatment. So there was enough there to make room for it from the story and certainly from the literature, but within the program itself, there was some of what felt like shame, I guess, around different, around some of these things, that there wasn't a lot of room for it. I can't help but notice that this kind of mirrors exactly what we were talking about in the beginning. With liquid. And that's why I, that's why I segued. All right. That's why I stopped there. And then I moved to the 12 steps. And now I want to ask you the same question around the 12 steps is what, why do you think this happens? And within, when I asked you that about Lakewood, you didn't have an exact answer. You said you're not sure. I mean, it would be hard to pin down one or two specific reasons, but and I think that th- this has nothing to do with religion as much as it does have to do with culture, mm-hmm. right? Things that are taught, sometimes not even said, but messages that we're receiving of I have to be a certain way, I must behave in a certain way, I must look a certain way, I must wear only specific clothing. Secretly, I really want to wear a blue shirt. Mm-hmm. But I like, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure to, 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 to say fit in doesn't begin to do it justice. It's not about fitting in as much as it is about, it's not like, oh, if I wear a blue shirt, people might give me weird looks. It's more of like, if I wear a blue shirt, like the people that I love the most might not love me anymore. Right, right. Fit in doesn't doesn't really quantify the risk. No, and I can't, even saying the people that I love might not love me anymore doesn't touch it. It's deep that people will stay in their dysfunction right in front of me like wake up because they're so scared of losing 
their attachments, their people. So let me throw something out there because I have a theory. Love to hear it. Okay, so here's... So let's say you and I um, say, okay, we're going to create a society in order to help, I don't know, dandelions grow in my garden, okay? What do you think is going to happen as soon as dandelions are growing in my garden? Are we going to disintegrate the society? I don't think so. All of a sudden, this entity, this society that we've created starts having this reason for being that's almost an independent reason for being outside of the reason that we've created it. So obviously, okay, this is a silly example, but let's take the 12 steps. It's once a few people come together to say, we're going to have this meeting and this meeting is part of this larger, mm -hmm. you know, call it an entity almost for a reason. It's an entity, mm -hmm. <laughs> this entity. We suddenly want it to exist and we do things to continue its existence even if it sacrifices the original intent that we had for it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Like the amount of times I've seen it with schools, I sat on the board of a school, I've been involved with supporting different schools, and the amount of times that I've seen them make decisions that were so obviously um, against the mm -hmm. well-being of the students. I'll give you one example, and I've given it a few times. as a school that I've heard this from more than one school, that within the first few days of school, lined up all the kids who weren't paying tuition and asked them to leave, whose parents hadn't paid tuition and asked them to leave. And in some cases it was, you know, depending on the age group, okay, you're no longer welcome school, go home until this is sorted out. Or in others, you know, younger grades, we're lining you up all up in the hallway until your parents come to pick up, whether it takes an hour or five hours, right? And the kids lined up in the hallway for all to see. You're wondering, how did this happen? Like, how did, how did it happen that a group of people came together and said, they didn't say we're going to educate, we're going to traumatize our kids and give them a story for life that's going to... Yeah, that's a core memory yeah, right, right there. Yes. <laughs> right. It can keep a lot of therapists busy for many, oh, many yeah. years, a story like that. And especially if, there's a, if it was a religious school or if their parents were involved with the school or any, anything else we can mix into it. If God sanctioned the school in some way, now we have some religious trauma as well. But... So what happened here? What happened yeah. is, is that a few people came together, made a school with the best of intentions, but then suddenly the entity had to exist independent of the reason that it was created for. But why? Why, why does there Why do we do that? Human beings just do it. That's what I think. So we create institutions, yes. we create organizations, we create communities, and we forget the reason we did it. And then we start making decisions that benefit the group versus the um, the actual well-being of the members. And even if the organization's original creation was to assist in the well-being of its members. like So, for example, with 12 Steps, this idea of once an addict, always an addict, I don't, I don't believe it. I think that that's an idea that they keep repeating over and over and over again because if too many graduate, we won't have meetings. Very interesting perspective. <laughs> Your question, like, what, how does this happen? People are flawed. Exactly. That's it. I mean, can that just be a blanket answer? People. But what are is flawed? the flaw? Meaning, the, the reason why I think it's important is what is the flaw? So when, 
when we say, okay, like the addiction, what is someone looking for? What is the flaw? Their, their, their drive is for some sort of, uh, I don't know, drama or chaos or something to distract themselves from the pain. Mm -hmm. So it's not, they don't want broken relationships. They want a distraction. And once we understand that, oh, they want a distraction from pain, then we slowly bring them into the pain. So meaning understanding what the core thing is behind what you described in the Lakewood community as things that would um, not give room for people to be imperfect, not give room for people to have a human experience, not give room for people to experience a normal human emotions, which is to the yes. detriment of its members. I ask myself these questions every day, Ellie. But it's to the benefit of the system. Yes. That's what I'm saying. That's the okay. drive is to the benefit of the benefit system. Of the, okay. Because if there are too many members, it it bothers in religious communities. It's more bothersome if someone shaves their beard than if someone molests a child. Why? Because one is out in the public that threatens the community and one doesn't. And I wonder how the members feel about the way that this is. Some members sit down like we are and talk about it. Others feel this way and never talk about it. And then others say, we're getting enough of benefit, so we'll tolerate it. It's ironic. What? The, the whole thing, actually. Uh, does it work? Doesn't work. No one thinks it works. Exactly. That's no the ironic thinks, part. No one, it's, but no one thinks it works. But no one who doesn't think it works thinks that it won't exist in 10 or 20 years because they understand yeah. that there was an entity created meant to do something. It cannot do it. It cannot accomplish it. I think, um, where was it? They spoke about one major drug lord, I think in Mexico, who was taken down. And what happened? It's like within mm -hmm. a day mm -hmm. of him taken down, he was replaced by three people. Yeah. So the, the, if, if they arrest one guy who's dealing drugs in the corner, the next day he's replaced by someone else who has that same, you know, the, the same uh, region. To, to sell drugs to. They they have they haven't done anything meaningful in this in this war. There's still plenty of addicts. There's still plenty of people getting whatever it is they want, et cetera, et cetera. All this exists. But the war on drugs still exists because an entity was created to fight it. And now even though it can't do what it was set out to do, and it would if they knew then what they know now, they would never do this thing. I think most most people who Anyone I've heard who really understands the issues doesn't think this is stopping. Yes. Just because it doesn't a, work. One could say a war on people. Yes. It's hard to change your mind. It's hard to alter your reality. I mean, I see it with my clients when they have this idea of how their life has been. Then we start to do some work. hard to shift the reality that you have built your life on. It's hard to change your mind. That makes sense? That's for sure true, right? Because then, right, in many cases, you have to destroy everything you know in order to build again. Is that similar to what? Um, is that different or the same than what we're talking about with entities and organizations and institutions? Maybe not. Maybe not. There is a quasi 
destruction that has to take place in order to create the next the next thing. Within, Not always a total annihilation, but sometimes. Yeah, on an individual and on a group level, this work is like an annihilation of fake parts of ourselves that grew out of our dysfunctional life experiences. Right. And oftentimes we have to put ourselves at risks in ways that we we don't know which part is going to have to be removed. Like, yes. So we have to put everything at risk and then we find out that we can keep some of it. But we don't know until we put everything at risk. And I guess that's where the that would kind of be similar with certain organizations in order to make the move that was best for their stated mission and purpose, they have to put themselves at risk. I see it. I see it. In my life. I see it in organizations. I see it in Jewish organizations. Just yesterday I was reading a website and I was like, ah, oh, love this so much. Because I was about everything that I was reading. Now I don't know them deeply. I'm hoping for more of a relationship to get to know them on that level. Um, but it was beautiful. It was just so beautifully written, you know, for, for, it was a Jewish organization, you know, kind of advocating for, you know, mental health services. And it was just written to, to anybody who struggles out there. And I'm thinking if I was somebody who went to this website, who was struggling, uh, no matter where I fell, you know, whatever my Judaism looked like or doesn't look like, I would feel comfortable and safe calling these people. And like, they're going to, they're going to accept me. They're going to respect me as a person. So I'm seeing, I see some shit. I, I experienced that. I hear it. Okay. Did we cover everything you wanted to cover? I think we touched on a lot. I mean, this place right here is something that makes me feel acutely aware of my humanness. Which space right here? The space of like this, you know, this razor edge. Right. My acutely aware of my humanness. And it also makes me acutely aware of animals. We're what? That like, piece. That we are animals. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you mean by those two things? Acutely aware of your humanness and that we are animals. Acutely aware of my humanness of like, man, we're humans. We're flawed. We make mistakes. We make mistakes, especially when we feel threatened. We, when we have to protect ourselves, we can act without choice. For instance, when the Titanic sank, when, when somebody is drowning, they can be in such a panic that they can try to use somebody else's head as a flotation device. Mm. That's what I mean. Like I'm feeling the presence of that right now of, man, I'm human and we're flawed and we react sometimes and not respond. Like if somebody was to tell me, Gara, if you were drowning, you would grab somebody and be like, no, I wouldn't. Right. I would never do that. <laughs> That's just not something I would, how could I ever do that? It's causing harm. Like, you know, this idea that I'd like to think of myself as a person. But, you know, when we're feeling threatened and we feel like we need to protect ourselves, these 
you know, reactions can set in. That's not a conscious decision to choose somebody else. Right. We don't know what we're going to do in those situations. Right. Yeah. That's the scary part. Yeah. Right. That's what, what I'm feeling. Like, wow. That wow. Yeah. And I think that that. I, I think that that's the move. Meaning that's the move is to recognize how easy we can screw things up. Like anytime we're so, so, so certain that like we know the answer, it's. It's just a scary place to be because we can we can go too far to one side or another. Right. There's a huge like invitation to be to befriend fear there and to be present with that vulnerability and to know that about ourselves. Right. Yeah, I think that you know, in a previous conversation today. Um, so also a therapist who spoke about IFS therapy and spoke using some of that language and called like the religious part, right? Mm -hmm. And that religious part that just, that's gravitating to some sort of absolute truth that's mm -hmm. going to give us the answer from now until forever and how mm -hmm. familiar we are with it and how we want to just go there, like make life simple for us. And unfortunately, it's just not something that that exists to pretend that there is some simple answer that we can say in six words and this is the thing to or even 12 phrases right and this is going to be the answer to everything in all circumstances and we're going to know exactly what to do it's like no at the end of the day we're all human beings modeling other human beings and we run Very the risk true. of creating some uh, pretty dark realities so true. And it's an, it's an honor to be able to be here with you and be present with some of those dark realities and to have those hard conversations. Right. Right. I think that, you know, like just like summing all of those things up when you talk about Judaism, the 12 steps, um, any of the other areas we addressed is the original like reason to be was probably something that was very very good and whether we're for or against or you know on either side mm -hmm. like that original drive was something that was very very good something we wanted to create real positive in the world and just push too far and ignoring everything else we can create unfortunately the opposite of it you know the Talmud says even about the Torah which um is that the Torah can be the elixir of life or the elixir of death. Taken mm. to the right, it can be the elixir of life. Taken to the left, mm. it can be the elixir of death. Like we always need to be... And the way I understand that is the same words can be used as an elixir of life and just a little bit of a twist can become the elixir of death. Even the Torah, the Talmud, the Talmud, is like, even the Torah, God's words, like, can, can be... Can, can become that and how sensitive we have to be to just be so sure, so sure that our way is the, like how quickly we go to that place and seeing very, I mean, the 12 steps, like you said, saved your life, saved my life. That's why I thought it would be appropriate, like to use two examples very far from each other, Judaism, the 12 yeah. steps and see if there are similarities. And I think, I, I think there yeah. are. And then I know the risk is that as we start talking about these topics, someone can think 
oh, you or I have disrespect for Judaism or disrespect yeah. for the 12 steps and go further away from his results. Like, no, they both have so much beauty to offer the world. So much. So much. So much beauty. I have seen that power of community with my Orthodox clients like I've never seen. I've seen people come together and in 24 hours, you know, have the funds to send somebody to a treatment center. I have seen such just amazing beauty, just, so there really is all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that becomes a question is how do we balance, how do we preserve that, the beauty of the community? Yeah. And the individual being able to shine as well. So if Good. we can walk that razor's edge. That's an edge. That's, a, that's an edge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an edge. It's, yeah. It's an edge, as are, as are many truths. Who said it? Or who said it? But the measure of enlightenment, enlightenment is the ability to handle duality, is the ability to handle two. Oh, yeah. People don't, many people don't like dualities. Many people like reason, certainties. Right. Love it. I've got clients that are like, they want to understand, they want to understand, they want to understand. I'm like, you got the wrong therapist. Like, that <laughs> is not me. You know what I mean? I'm like, what are you noticing in your body? Like, can we hold this space? Can we be here? You know, what would it be like to let go of that need for certainty for just one moment? really hard for people not hard i've had other things that are really hard for me but like you know as you said if, if there was just 12 words that could give us that certainty how comfortable would that be might be comfortable but it wouldn't be so fun so all right here's to another day fun <laughs> boring yes. exactly yes. thank you on that note i appreciate you coming out i hope you got a lot from the conversation i certainly did and i hope uh, those who share with it take um, what it is we meant for them to uh, to get from it. Hopefully the intention is felt on the other side of it. Thank you so much for having me. Very, very grateful to be here. Thank you for the stimulating conversations. I have a lot to think about after this. It's <laughs> going to be an exhausting evening, but I'm here for it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.